If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to, we're actually going to do three passages today. Acts 1.8 is where we're going to start. Hopefully, most of you have already memorized this particular verse. Um, But this is just the beginning of the fourth part of our life cycle that we're going to be talking about. If you recall, over the last four to five weeks, we've been doing a series about the discipleship life cycle here at Harvest Time Bible Church. In the first week, we learned that in, in the book of John, Jesus prayed for, the followers, for his followers that would be coming after him. He prayed that the Holy Spirit would come upon them, and then he says that there would be um, a process of sanctification that would begin in their life. In other words, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they would become more and more like Jesus. But it wasn't something that would happen all at once, even though they did receive justification, that moment where Jesus chooses to view us as being guiltless and holy and righteous positionally before God, but That doesn't mean that our behavior always matches up with what Jesus has said is true spiritually. And so he says that the part of us that he's praying for is that as we are here on this planet, as we are continuing to study the word of God, as we are living life together, we will become more and more like Jesus in our daily living. That means we will sin less and live righteously more. The important part of that, though, is that in order to see that accomplished in our life, we have to have more and more dependency on the Holy Spirit. Because the reality is this, that if you try to live the Christian life based on your own effort, your own will, if you white-knuckle it, you will fail. And the, the battle in you and the battle in me is this constant battle between the Holy Spirit and the Spirit that's alive in me that the Holy Spirit brings alive and my flesh. And Paul writes over and over again that we should, that we should cru- be crucified with Christ, that we should kill our flesh, that we should deny what it wants in order for us to become more holy, more set apart, more righteous, and our behavior to match what God has already said is true about us and our standing before God. And he says that the best place, if you read the book of John again, the best place for you to participate in the process of sanctification is in unity with your fellow believers in Jesus Christ. Now, the difficulty about unity is that every one of you is an individual. And every one of you have opinions. Have you figured that out yet? And every one of you have opinions that's based on your preference. Every one of you has opinions based on your experience. Every one of you has opinions on politics and, and, and food and music and all of these different types of things. And Jesus says he still wants us to be one, not, in, not necessarily sharing all the same opinions, not necessarily agreeing on everything in the whole world, but one in him recognizing that I am a sinner saved by grace and you are a sinner saved by grace. And at the cross, everyone is equal because we are all as equally in need of the righteousness of God being poured out on us as anybody else who comes to the cross. There is no Jew nor Greek. There is no male or female. There is no one better or worse at the foot of the cross. We all stand in abject need of God's grace and mercy at the foot of the cross. And so because of that, we can have unity in our need. We have unity in our Savior. We have unity in the only way that we can experience eternal life. We have unity in Jesus. And so for some reason, God in his infinite wisdom has thought that the best place for us to grow in our faith 
is around other Christians. And I don't know about you, but there are some times where I'm like, God, are you sure? Because it seems like other Christians don't always help us in our walk. Sometimes it seems like Christians can be a stumbling block to my walk. Or, or maybe Christians can annoy me or, 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 or somehow get under my skin, make my flesh stronger at times. And yet, for some reason, God said that his desire was for us to be sanctified in unity with other Christians. Now, what we've explored is, uh, for the last several weeks is that th- there's four different elements that we have here at Harvest Time that we believe everybody should participate in. Whether or not you're at, at Harvest Time or whether or not you're at another church, there are four specific areas that we can be engaged in through the power of the Holy Spirit that will help us in the process of being sanctified in unity with our fellow believers in Christ. Number one was, if you remember, was gathering together. The idea that the church should gather. The church should get together. And if you look at our little illustration up here, the Sunday worship is our, one of our main gathering points, but it's not the only gathering point. The idea is that followers of Jesus are designed for community. We are designed to live our Christian life in the process of being in relationships with other people. When you hear somebody say, well, I can follow Jesus and I can do it on my own, the reality is you can, but when you're alone, you're more than likely going to get attacked by the enemy. The, you know, the, the scripture says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if you've ever watched the, the learning channel, you have probably seen a lion go after somebody. Who do they go after? He goes, he goes after the one that is trailing away from the herd, the one that is alone, the one that believes he can do it on his own. That is the one that Satan attacks because it, the reality is that there is strength in numbers. When you are with like-minded believers and you are holding each other accountable and you're speaking truth to one another, there is strength. When the Holy Spirit in you speaks to the Holy Spirit in me. There's something that happens in the presence of God in both of our lives that enables us to live that justification lifestyle. So we are to gather together, but we learned that week that we are not just to gather together to sit and listen. For a lot of people, it's about just coming, sitting in a pew and having the pastor with a shovel just shovel the food right into their mouth and they leave here full for about three days, maybe a day and a half. And they'd never open the word of God again until they come back to church the next Sunday. And that series of binges and purges is an is a eating disorder spiritually. It is an eating disorder spiritually. Because what happens is, is we, we get glutted full, and we do nothing with it, and then we live the following week in complete weakness without any kind of food that feeds our spirit, and we do not progress and grow spiritually if the only time we open the word of God is on Sunday morning. So when we gather together, you are not just to sit here and listen, you are to look for other people to encourage. Because when we are together, we can remind each other that we have hope. Scripture tells us that Part of the purpose of gathering together is for each of us to remind the other that no matter how bad the world looks, no matter how bad politics look, no matter how bad circumstance around us looks, that our hope is not in this world, but our hope is in Jesus Christ. And he has already won. 
And we are simply to live a life in response to that victory, even though the circumstance around us doesn't always look like we're winning, but we have already won, people. And our job as followers of Jesus is to remind each other of that fact. If you are ever on Facebook, which I don't recommend, but if you are ever on Facebook, have you seen the hopelessness that gets shared on Facebook every single day? Do we wonder why Christians can be some of the most discouraged, depressed people on this planet when we are constantly reminding each other about how terrible things are? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying things aren't bad sometimes. But that completely eliminates the reality that Jesus Christ has won the battle. And that he is coming back. And all the stuff that is messed up in this world, he's going to fix. He's going to. He promises. The scripture says he's going to come. He's going to end sin and death. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. All of these things are promised in the word of God. And we would know that if we actually opened it and studied the word of God. So where does your hope lie? Does it lie in the systems of this world? Or does your hope lie in the person of Jesus? We gather to remind each other where our hope lies. Number two, we want to grow in our knowledge of the word of God because we believe that the primary way that, that God speaks to the people of this world is through his word, the book. And it's important for us to sit under good teaching. We open the Word of God every Sunday morning, and we, we read the Word of God. We're going to read quite a chunk here in just a few moments. But not only is it important for us to read in this context, it's important for us to read it together in smaller conversations and smaller groups. You see, it's not just enough to sit and hear somebody else talk about it. Our learning life groups is about growing in our knowledge about the Word of God. And here at Harvest Time, we have all, most of them are on Sunday morning in between our two services. We invite you to come and check out some of those where we open the Word of God and we learn more about His teaching. But not only that, it's important for you to be opening up the Word of God yourself, to be able to be able to tell if a pastor, a speaker, is speaking truth or a lie. You need to be able to understand and rightly divide the word of truth so that no matter who is sitting before you, if they are saying something and they say it as thus saith the Lord, but the Lord thus didn't say it, you need to be able to know. And you need to be able to call them out based on that reality. But a lot of people just assume that because they look like a preacher, they act like a preacher, and they open the book, that they are saying what the book says. We need to be able to know the difference. Learning life groups are to help with that. Last week, we talked about giving. We talked about the reality that your time, your energy, and your resources are not yours. God did not give them to you primarily for your use. God has given you all of those things for the betterment of the kingdom of God and to serve one another. That is why he has given you what you have. And so community life groups are just a way for people to get together and to be able to give of their time and energy and resources to one another. I am thankful for those who are involved in community life groups. Did you know that at harvest time, at full attendance, we had nearly 800 people? Now, after COVID, we haven't been anywhere close to that, just being honest with you. But during that time period, um, there was still this expectation as, as an idea that if anybody that was of the 800 to 1,000 people that called harvest time their home was sick, only the pastor was the one that they wanted to come see them. Only the senior pastor, specifically, not even, the, not even us, the second, the second and third guys. And again, it's not that the senior pastor doesn't mind doing that. In reality, though, it needs to be more than just the senior pastor that goes out and cares for people when they're sick. 
It needs to be more than just the deacons. But if you don't have a relationship built, except on Sunday morning, who is going to check on you when you're sick? Who's going to miss you when you skip? Right? It would be nice if it would be the senior pastor, but imagine, you know, first off, Dalm is a superhuman. I'm not, I'm not even joking. He's got a brain like a steel trap, and he can remember faces and names of people that he met 25 years ago. He is amazing at it, and I will tell you, he's rare. So the reality is this. If, if you want to be somebody who has a relationship with people, you want somebody to notice when you're not around the church, or you want somebody to experience life with, if you want somebody that can be there to walk with you through difficult times, then get into a community life group and build relationships with each other. Build a relationship with other people. Because in reality, we need to do that work of the ministry with each other, to each other. It's not just the paid staff that's going to be able to do it. What happens someday when, because over and over again, we hear about how the church someday is not going to be able to meet as it meets now. The church as a whole throughout the world doesn't meet in big rooms like this. For the most part, it meets in house churches. It meets in small meeting areas. It meets in secret because there is real persecution that happens to the church throughout the world. And what's going to happen when the pastor, the senior pastor of that group, cannot get into your home or visit you in the hospital? Who is going to, are you going to call on for support? It needs to be those who you have built a spiritually connected relationship with in some kind of community and learning life group. Those are the people that should be providing meals. Those are the people that should help take care of you. So the question is, so far, are you gathering together with the idea of doing something more than just listening? Are you actually growing in your knowledge of the word of God? And the way you'll know that is, are you actually applying it to how you live your life? And number three, are you actually giving of your time, energy, and resources to the church? Yes, but to a smaller group of people that you are supposed to build relationships with so you can do life together. Gather, grow, and give. And today we're going to cover the last part, the last part of our process, and that is to go. Acts 1.8 says this, if you have your Bibles. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. A couple of observations from this. First off, this is written specifically to the, 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 the apostles who are in that room at that moment, right? And so what he's saying is that the, these first Christians, the very first people that gave their life to Christ, he is saying to them, something different is going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and, and you're going to be given all kinds of abilities that you didn't have before. Um, specifically in this passage, he is saying you are going to receive a power that is outside of yourself, and when that power comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. Now, what, what does that mean? I think that means that based on their own power and their own strength, there was probably a couple of them that were maybe more outgoing. I, I can imagine Peter being a natural going out. He's, he's one of those guys that walks into a room mouth first, right? Speaking all the time, talking, saying all kinds of stuff. That's not, you know, I know some folks like that. Some of you are like that. Um, but that's not everybody. For many of us, the idea of speaking you know, to somebody we don't know is kind of um, unnerving. Or, or, building, or having a conversation with somebody in an elevator or something like that is just completely 
out of our comfort zone because it's not in our natural way of, about who we are. Well, this passage says that you're, you're going to receive power to do something that is beyond your nature. Okay, specifically to the apostles, but there's going to be something outside of you. And what that says is once you receive that power, you will. It's not even a question of you might be. It's not even given as an option. It says you will be my witnesses. Now, what's a witness is the question. Uh, You know, we talk about witnessing. And I think in in, in church settings, that word has gotten kind of twisted in what it means. Uh, Witnessing is not necessarily just about going up to a random person and launching directly into a gospel presentation without context. Witnessing literally is talking about telling them what you've seen and experienced. Like if you're called into court and you're a witness for the prosecution or you're a a witness for the defense, all you are called to do is tell the truth about what happened to you at a specific time. And so the step number one in being somebody who is a goer, somebody who is going and sharing the gospel, is having an understanding that first you have to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. If you are, again, trying to work up the power to do it based on your own self, a lot of times waiting for that gumption never comes because we are waiting for our nature to somehow desire to do this. And the na- your nature, especially your flesh, will have no desire to do this. In fact, your flesh will tell you every reason in the world why you should never, ever be a witness about what Jesus said, has done for you. And then many of you have had that battle in your mind. You're, you're talking to somebody, and you're like, man, maybe I should talk about Jesus. And there's a voice in your head that says, no, 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 that would be uncomfortable. I'm not going to do it. Listen, when something tells you <laughs> to, to, to share Jesus, that is a prompting from the Holy Spirit. And our, our job is to share, to witness what has happened to us to somebody else. Now, step number one, there's another assumption we need to make here, folks. If you have no desire to share what Jesus has done for you, then you need to ask yourself, has Jesus done anything for you? If you don't know Jesus, if you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus, if you have not repented from your sins and confessed and believed that Jesus has died for you, and you have zero, if you have not done that, then you do not know Jesus. You can be as religious as you want. You can be as participating in church as you want. You could have been baptized, take the Lord's Supper. You could have been confirmed, all of those things. But if you have not truly surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then you don't know him. Do not trust in your works or your participation in religion to affirm that you know Jesus. Because if you don't trust him, if you have not placed your faith and trust in him, you do not know him, and you will have nothing to share. There will be no desire in you to share anything because Jesus has done nothing for you personally. But if you have experienced the saving work of Christ, and you know what you've been saved from, man, when I think about my life and how left on my own, and the stuff that I would be doing apart from the intervention of the Holy Spirit in my life, I am amazed at the the incredible work of the Holy Spirit. I know how bad I am now, let alone what would happen if I don't have God intervening in my life. And I know that it's a constant battle now. Living apart from the Holy Spirit in my life, I would be so much worse So the question number one is this. Do you feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit 
Do you have that power inside of you so that you will be my witnesses? Then he talks about it in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And, and traditionally, we've said that that means your, your local area, your, your regional area, your country, and throughout the world. Well, I just want to focus first on are you willing to share Jesus with the people that you live with every day? Start there. Today, we did Operation Christmas Child, and in a small way, we are doing the sending the gospel throughout the world. Harvest time, we, we, we support missionaries throughout the world that are busy sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we send people. There's another team going to Honduras, I think, in what, January, that are people that are going throughout the world. But sometimes it's even easier to do that than it is to take the Jesus that is supposed to have changed your life and share him with the people that you live with every day or that you work with every day. So my question to you in that passage, have you sensed the Holy Spirit's power in you, compelling you and strengthening you to share the gospel with those who are in your life every day? Turn over to Matthew 28. This is another version. This is part that Jason has preached on quite a bit about the, the great Commission, And he often says, this is not the great opinion. This isn't the great option. This is the great commission that's given to all of us who are followers of Jesus. Starting in verse number 16, he says this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Stop there for a second. That verse always amazes me. And it's easy for me to get a little judgmental over those who are standing there with Jesus right now, right? Because what's happened is that Jesus died. Three days later, he rose again as it was predicted in Scripture. He spent a lot of time out there ministering to folks. He's ministering to the people who are going to be his disciples. They're going to participate in sharing the gospel with the world. People had come up and touched his resurrected body. They had put their fingers and the nail scars in his hands. And here they were doing what he had commanded. And even while they were sitting there watching a guy they knew had raised from the dead, some doubted. Now, some of you are like, Man, how, how could they doubt? <laughs> well, because they're human. And they have a flesh, just like you and I have a flesh. I want you to know that in the process of sharing your faith, it is natural for us to have thoughts and feelings of doubt. That is that battle that's on the inside of you. Satan is going to do everything he can to try to convince you that your story, the gospel story that Jesus did for you is not worthy of sharing. He's going to get you to, to doubt who you are in Christ. He's going to doubt, have you doubt that you are a worthy witness of what's happened in your life. You may think, well, this person over here has an incredible story. He was a drug dealer and a murderer. No, he, he was Paul, right? He, he killed a bunch of people, then he wrote a bunch of Bible. That's an incredible story of turnover. That, that's a story worth telling. Listen, any story that involves repentance and faith, a changed heart by the interaction of Jesus in their life, every one of those stories is worthy of telling. All of them. Because Jesus changes things. These folks had experienced Jesus in real life, resurrection, seen him with their eyes and still had doubts. 
The question is not whether or not you will have doubts about sharing your faith. The question is, what are you going to share your faith in spite of those doubts? Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now there is a, a parallel that's happening here between the passage in Matthew and the passage in Acts. In Acts, it says you will receive power. You will be given the Holy Spirit, and the, and, the, and the Holy Spirit inside of you will empower you and strengthen you to share the gospel with a world that's lost and dying. In this passage, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me over everything. <laughs> what is he saying? He's saying that all the power that is needed for the evangelism of this world has been given to me. And then later in Acts, he says, the power that has been given to me, I now am going to impart to you for the purpose of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and building the church of God. God the Father has given Jesus that authority and power in heaven and on earth. And he says, because he's given that power, our job, followers of Jesus, is to go and make disciples of all nations. But what does that mean? I know we talk about the reality of that we are called to make disciples. Great. But in some messages that I've heard before, not necessarily here, we, we limit that to just talking about Jesus, just being an evangelist. And again, please, I, my, my thinking is, is not everybody has a gift of evangelism. Not everybody. Um, my brother, Seth, he's a pastor up in Wisconsin. This man can walk into a Casey's and in five minutes be doing a gospel presentation to a lady he just met behind the, the cash register. That man has a gift of evangelism. And you all know people like that. You all know people that they can, have a, they can get to know somebody and share the gospel in like five seconds. Those people have the gift of evangelism. And it's an amazing thing to watch. But not everybody has the gift of evangelism. But everybody has the responsibility of evangelism. Does that make sense? Not everybody has the gift of evangelism, but everybody has the responsibility of evangelism. So what does it mean then for us who are followers of Jesus who might not have that ultimate like, gift to be able to walk up to a stranger? Well, first off, there have been times in my life, and me, many of you may not believe this, but I am somewhat of an introvert. I, I know, I mean, they call me an extroverted introvert, right? Don't ask me, read up on it on Google. But basically what that means is, like, if I'm in a room of strangers, I am very comfortable fading into the background, sitting in the back row, and not having to talk to a bunch of people. When I'm comfortable, like in a, in a building like this, I can go around and I can talk to everybody, and it's fine. But then I go home and I take a nap because it's tiring. Right? So what, what that means, though, is I don't, just because I don't have the natural gift of evangelism does not relinquish me from the responsibility of evangelizing. And that is why God gives us power through the working of the Holy Spirit. There have been times when I was said, Lord, I don't know what to say. And the Lord spoke. 
I don't even remember some of the stuff I've said to people, but people have given their life to Christ as a result of being willing and obedient to be a vessel of the Holy Spirit in a moment that we share the word of God. And that is what we are, that what we are called to be, a, a vessel for the speaking of the Holy Spirit in those moments. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Notice he didn't say go and make converts. The Great Commission is not a command just to win people to Jesus. That's part of it because you can't make a disciple unless they come to Jesus, but it's so much more than just sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The idea of discipleship actually has more to to do with building a relationship with somebody that leads to salvation, but goes past that and gets into the process of sanctification. We are called to bring people into the life cycle and to participate in the relationships of that life cycle. Then he gives us an idea from Scripture. He tells us exactly what that means. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, which, by the way, that means all nations, all people, all colors, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic backgrounds. We should judge nobody as unworthy of the gospel because the gospel can transform anybody. Make disciples of all nations. And then he says, this is how you do it baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, which is supposed to be the first act of obedience after you give your life to Christ. So if you have chosen not to be baptized by immersion, we need you to pray, perfectly consider being baptized. Because it is actually a sign of obedience to the Lord. It's a sign that you have been willing to surrender your life to Christ. It's an important first step of obedience. And if you have chosen not to, that doesn't mean you're not saved, but it does mean that there needs to be part of you that gets surrendered to God because God asks us to be obedient through baptism. Then he goes on and he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? Part of our growth cycle is to teach them about all the things that God has commanded us. What has God commanded us? Well, first off, it's in the book. So we are to teach people to open the word of God and to study it and to know this is how we are to live our life. But not only that, we are, we are supposed to do life together. The, the Jewish idea of being a disciple of somebody wasn't just getting together once a week. A disciple of somebody, the the idea in in Jewish culture was that a Jewish rabbi would have a bunch of people that would follow him around every day, literally every day. And if they were a disciple of, of Rabbi Benjamin, let's say, they would watch how he did his life. They would watch how he ate. They would watch how he prayed. They would watch every day how he did everything, and he would then... They would try to emulate what they saw on a daily basis. That is what discipleship is. And that is the important part of discipleship here and now. It's not just telling people to pray a prayer and then leaving them to wallow alone trying to figure out how to grow spiritually. It's about living our life day to day with each other. And I'm asking people to follow me as I follow Jesus. As I'm trying to emulate and live like Jesus, these people that, are work, that I'm working with, that I'm, that I'm struggling with, that I'm going through life with, will also try to live like Jesus together, not just by themselves. 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He even ends it with this idea, this daunting task. He says, make these disciples. Yes, share Jesus, evangelize, but don't abandon them. Walk with them through the process of discipleship. But don't worry, all this power that I've given you is going to be with you because I am going to be with you even through the end of the age. All of it through the dependency on the Holy Spirit. Flip over to Romans chapter 10, and as every time I preach, time gets away from me. Romans chapter 10. Paul goes on to give us even a little bit more emphasis and importance on why we are called to this process of going to share the gospel with others. Starting in verse number 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Pretty simple, right? There's two parts of salvation there. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In other words, I believe that Jesus is the boss. He has the right to tell me what is sin. He has the right to, to, to tell me what to do. He has the right to tell me what to turn my life away from, what to repent from. He is the boss, and two, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. In other words, Jesus is alive. It's not just his death that is the important part of salvation, even though that is vital. But if he didn't raise from the dead, there would be no salvation because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of everything that we do as followers of Jesus. We are alive because he is alive. Amen? If you confess and believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice, we have made, at times, salvation a whole lot more complicated than it has to be. We expect people to clean themselves up before they come to Christ. And you've, you've heard people say things like, well, if I showed up at church, the, the, the roof would cave in. Well, you need to stop drinking, and you need to stop smoking, you need to stop doing all these things, and then you should come to church after you stop all that, and then we'll introduce you to the person of Jesus. Listen, there's nowhere in the Bible that it says, stop sinning and you'll get saved. Now, don't get me wrong. We, we just got done for weeks talking about the process of becoming more like Jesus and sinning less and becoming more holy. But that is a result of salvation, is not the method of salvation. If you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the result of that is discipleship, sanctification, if we will participate in it. But verse 14 is the part that we, as followers of Jesus, need to hear. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, 
Who has believed that he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. The question is this. For whatever reason, God has decided to use the words of human beings, relationships, and speaking the truth of the gospel to spread his gospel throughout the world. I don't know why. I would think that God could do a lot better than my voice or your voice, but he has chosen to include us in the absolute joy of sharing the gospel with this world. Have you thought about what a privilege that is? We are his vehicles for the gospel of Jesus. We are called to go. Now, before many of you are like, well, I, you know, it says preaching. Well, I'm not a preacher, so I'm off the hook. The word preaching there is actually the Greek word caruso. And what it actually translates at is this, to public, publicly proclaim, publish, or speak the gospel of Jesus. You can, you can publish. I've seen all of you guys publish on Facebook all the time. Most of it ain't nothing to do with the gospel. How about instead of posting the newest political thing, we post the gospel of Jesus Christ. We publish Jesus wherever we are. Maybe you're not a preacher, but I know you all talk. Sometimes we can't get you to stop talking to start the service. Right? Are you talking about Jesus? And I know you proclaim things. We proclaim all kinds of stuff publicly all the time. We proclaim love for this, love for that. We proclaim all kinds of stuff on social media. The reality is this. We, as followers of Jesus, need to be willing to proclaim, to publish, and to speak the gospel because that is our primary calling. Let me ask you this. When people think of you, are they more likely to think of you as someone who proclaims Jesus or proclaims a political party? Let me ask you this. When somebody thinks of you, are you somebody who proclaims your loyalty to a sports team or more about Jesus? So please tell, don't, don't hear me say that it's wrong to publish stuff about a political party or a sports team or anything else like that. That's fine. I'm just saying that if Jesus is the Lord of your life, if he has done an amazing thing for you, if you truly believe that the gift of salvation is the greatest gift you have ever received, shouldn't that be the primary definer of who you are? And shouldn't that be what you proclaim more than these other things that are secondary or tertiary at best? Listen, we are here to gather. We gather to remind each other about the gospel of Jesus. We need to encourage one another. We, we come together to open the word of God, to allow the word of God to speak to our heart. The scripture says it's sharper than any two-edged sword to divide the bones from the marrow. It, it, this thing, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can convict us and, and challenge us if we will allow it to. It's living and breathing, and it's active in us. We get together because we need support. We, 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 we grow, to, we give to one another. We, we share our time, energy, and resources to build up the church so that we can be all together what God has called us to be. But in the end, if we are not a reproducing church, if we are not people who are purposely going out of our way to share the gospel with a lost and dying world, if we expect this world to change simply by voting instead of by allowing the Holy Spirit to inspire us to, sh to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a world that's lost and dying. Because in the end, it is the Holy Spirit and God who's going to do the changes in the hearts and lives of people. You cannot legislate change in people. You can't. 
You can try to control behavior, but if, you, if anybody who's a parent knows this, you can, you can change their behavior, but if they're standing up on the inside, that does not change a heart. So the question is, how do we see heart change in our world? How do we see heart change in our culture? How do we see a lasting change in our nation? Our, the lasting change in our nation will happen when we have a revival of people giving their life to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit changes them from the inside out. Then all of a sudden, our culture will change. But if we are missing out on our responsibility to go, if we miss out on that responsibility, then, I, then what is God going to do? Now, don't get me wrong. God can do whatever he wants. But he has given us a commission for a purpose. And that commission is to go and make disciples. Because think about what those early disciples, guys. A few guys went out. They made disciples. And here we are 2,000 years later with millions upon millions of people who have given their life to Christ as a result of the faithfulness of the early church. We are here because the early church obeyed the command to go. Imagine if we go as the Bible commands what the future will hold, if we are willing to obey the command to go. Will you go? Let's pray. Father, you are good. We worship you, we honor you, we ask you to work in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we will understand our responsibility to share you, to, to make disciples, to share the gospel with a world that's lost and dying. God, I pray that we will look for our hope where it truly is in you, that we will actively participate in politics, that we will actively participate in all these things, but only as a secondary way of, of sharing your word and your gospel. In the end, our hope is in you. The world's hope is in you. Eternal hope is only found in you. So, Lord, as we gather together, as we grow together, as we give to one another, and as we go together, help us, Lord, to participate in that old process of discipleship that's been here from the beginning, and may your kingdom continue to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and stand up with us as we sing this last song. Surrender your life to God. Ask him to show you who you need to share the gospel with. Work in us, Jesus.